Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Sound and Vision is supported by Golden Artist Colors, manufacturing in upstate New York, Golden Acrylics, Williamsburg Oils, and most recently, Core Watercolors, an employee-owned company committed to producing the highest quality materials while maintaining a culture of stewardship and community involvement. You can try their acrylics, oils, and water media. It's all top of the line. And for more information about Golden Artist Colors, call them at 1-800-959-6543 or visit goldenpaints.com. Sound and Vision is also brought to you by Charter Coffee House. Charter is on Graham Avenue in East Williamsburg, just one block from the Graham L stop. They serve great coffee, pastries, donuts, and more. Not only do I enjoy their fresh-brewed coffee at the store, I also get my beans for home from Charter. They carry and brew Middle State Coffee, a great roaster out of Denver, and they're currently working with them on a custom blend made specifically for Charter. Find out more at www.chartercoffee.com and follow them on Instagram at charter underscore BK. Walter Robinson is a New York artist and art critic. He has exhibited his work in several New York City galleries since the 1980s, including Haunch of Venison, Lynch Tam, and Metro Pictures. Walter Robinson Paintings and Other Indulgences, a retrospective exhibition of 90 works, dating from 1979 to 2012, opened in 2014 at the University Galleries at Illinois State University. It traveled to Moore College in Philadelphia, and its final appearance was at Jeffrey Deitch Gallery in Soho. He was also the founding editor at Artnet Magazine from 1996 to 2012, and news editor at Art in America from 1980 to 1996. He also served as art editor of the East Village Eye and co-published and co-edited ArtWrite magazine during 1973-77. Walter was also a correspondent for Art TV Gallery Beat, a public access television show in the late 90s, and co-founder of Printed Matter, the New York bookstore devoted to publications by artists. I stopped by Walter's Long Island City studio to talk about Oklahoma, Soho in its prime, writing about art, pulp imagery, and more. Here's our conversation. Uh, so, um, what do you want to do? Well, I'd love to turn back the clock. And uh, you grew up in... Uh, or you grew you up want in, to start at the beginning? Yeah. Tulsa? Is that yes, right? that's right. I was born in Wilmington, Delaware, because my father worked for DuPont. Uh-huh. He was a, a, a baby boomer. A hundred percent. So he worked for DuPont his entire career, and he was um, one of those unbelievable post-war fathers who sacrificed everything for his family. Yeah. I'm the eldest of four kids, and when I was in kindergarten, we moved to Tulsa. My father got transferred. With so, DuPont. yeah, DuPont transfers yeah. you around. So when I was a kid, he was selling explosives for the for highways and dams. That was basically it. And he'd take take me out on some jobs, and I'd I'd watch him uh, blow up Demo. sides of cliffs, you know, like this. And uh, then later in his career, when I came to New York in 1968 to go to college, uh, he got transferred to North Carolina. And since his career was winding down, 
he sold explosives mostly to rock quarries, which in my mind is almost like uh, working on the chain gang, yeah. you know, breaking rock, a lot less interesting if you're right. an engineer. But he was at the end of his career. And DuPont did uh, well by him, you know, over his, over his long career. He ended up with a, a nice nest egg that, mm -hmm. that took care of my mother after he died. She's dead now, too. Mm -hmm. And um, so that was the, sort of the golden era of, the, of corporate, being a corporate employee, I think. Right. And um, so to have all his kids turn into these bohemians and semi-bohemians is kind of funny. <laughs> I was the, as the eldest, I was the black sheep. Oh, really? You know, I, re I scored very high on um, the standardized tests, uh -huh. and they decided to send me from Tulsa to Ivy League, to an Ivy League college, so I went to Columbia. Otherwise, I would have been at OU or OSU in Norman or Stillwater in yeah. Oklahoma. Right. And so that's when my, um, my, that's when my race really began, when I came to New York Was in 1968. Uh, well, I, th I don't think I was awake enough to even feel yeah. the shock. I think I was in a fog most of the time. You know, I, can't, I went to college. I took part in, in demonstrations. I took drugs. Mm -hmm. I got arrested. All those things that happen to you when you're 18, 19, you know. Part of the curriculum. <laughs> I guess so. I used to say I had a double major, uh, getting high and chasing girls. <laughs> Um, so York, they spent a lot of money to send me to Columbia, and I'm afraid, you know, um, because of the generation I was, I didn't put a very high uh, value on my education. Yeah. So I didn't really put it to that great a use. Um, and to this day, Columbia College sends me their, their regular publication mm -hmm. in hopes, I suppose, of getting me involved in their alumni activities and maybe donating some money. And it's been... 50 years since I started going to college, since I came to New York, half a century. Yeah. And I, I haven't looked at that magazine once. <laughs> so that just, <clears throat> I feel like that gives me some kind of uh, bohemian bona fide feeds, you know? Yeah, but uh, a different kind of degree. I just wasn't interested. Right. I'm just not interested. I'm still, I still don't like to be a, um, a fan right I mean I am a fan of a lot of things of course but I don't like to be a member of a mass group right uh, like enthralled by some figure on a stage I have know? that gut feeling too it's always that. a little like something bad's gonna come out of <laughs> a lot of people really passionate about one it just offends my egotistical you yeah. know uh, individuality <laughs> right. this right. idea that that I should like love this person more than anything yeah you know? but, but your dad was like blue collar right uh, well, I mean, he yes. was educated, obviously, because yes. he's doing some sort of engineering. But I think they, I think it was firmly middle class. The the, I grew up in Tulsa, and um, it was intensely segregated yeah. back in the '60s. But it was also suburbia, USA. Right. I lived in the suburbs. It was a lot like uh, uh, those E. F. Hinton novels, The mm -hmm. Outsiders, is very much about Tulsa. Tulsa was um, socias and greasers. Yeah. If you remember, the greasers were the hoodlums, and right. socials were the like captain of the football team. And the railroad and, tracks split the two. <laughs> yeah, except I never knew about the other side of the tracks. I, yeah. I wasn't really very much of a Larry Clark. I yeah. never saw the 
dark side until I came to New York and started looking for it. Right. So. Well, it's probably a little, little more in your face in New York uh, City at that time, I, I would imagine. Did you play baseball? I, w- I was not a, very much into sports. See, I just, Tulsa, I think, I think of trains. I, this is probably based on nothing. Trains, baseball, and Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys. <laughs> we we listened to uh, Wolfman Jack. Yeah. That was the big thing. And of course, I played I played baseball. Uh, they did have baseball. I wasn't really very good at it uh, because it um, anything that t- takes uh, either natural gifts or a lot of practice, I hate it because yeah. I feel like gift free and I hate to practice. So. It's really adolescent, where immature did that, attitude. Where did that place you? In? <laughs> well, I played in the band. Oh, okay. Uh, which, of course, I never really learned how to play an instrument either. So what did they give you? I've been a loafer my whole life. <laughs> Lazy man. Uh, I played the saxophone because I have thin lips. I have these awful, thin Anglo-Saxon lips. You know. Oh, is it, well, I played sax, too. Is that the prerequisite? <laughs> well, if you have big lips, they give you a brass instrument. That's true. My son the just got the trombone. You get the, yeah, yeah. the thin, thin lips. He's got yeah. bigger lips. You got the trombone. Yeah, I played the sax, too. Alto? The thing I remember most about high school sports, and it bugs me to this day, is that they would make us run around the track. Yeah. And I really hated running. You know, it was way in advance of the whole runner revolution that we've had since, and you see people running, and people love to run, and it's so good for you. No, I hate it, too. I had none of that. It was yeah. just, like, painful. And my best friend, I would see him out out in the front, you know, like the guys who could really run. Right. Big I just smile hated that. And <laughs> I don't know why. Uh, I don't know why. I don't know why. I should have conquered my dislike of the pain of exercise. Because now I ride a city bike across the bridge to get to my studio. Yeah. I ride it over and back, and as a, as a discipline, I enjoy it very much. It's very convenient, and the, the idea that I should sit around and wait for a bus or the subway seems ridiculous now that yeah. I have the bike. But you're on a bike, it's a beautiful city. I mean, you're out, you're moving around. When yeah, you're running around a field. It's a steep hill, you know. The, you're, no, you're no, no, killing I mean, it, yourself. It's a lot of work, but I'm saying there's there's something i feel like people would just go running around the track or something it's the most boring thing in the world so i played soccer at least there was a ball there to like motivate me you know what i mean it's a lot of running but it didn't feel like just running are you, you know? a soccer fan now i yeah i'm yeah. still very into it yeah we have a soccer team here in new york don't and we NY- well yeah we had the red bulls that have been here for a while but they're in jersey but they're new york red bulls but yeah now nycfc which plays in yankee stadium is here yeah yeah. Well, we should go to a soccer game sometime. Definitely. Well, they're they're going to build a new stadium, which will be nice because watching soccer in Yankee Stadium is not the ideal stadium for for soccer. But yeah, it's Well, I've been spoiled by television. Yeah, it's it's nice at home. Yeah. <laughs> Did you ever see that um that artwork about uh Zidane? Oh, yeah, yeah, the uh What's the guy's um, name? He's he's Scottish. Lives in Brooklyn though. Oh, that was fantastic! Where yeah, the yeah. camera just followed Jadon the whole time. Right. Why am I blanking on his name? Ah, well, I'll edit it in. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Yeah, no, but, but yeah, that was a great. But this that, some good soccer art here and there. That was a pretty interesting piece. Yeah, I it was good. I got to admit, even though it didn't show the game, it didn't no, show it the game him. at all. It just was showed it from a single player's perspective, and it wasn't even really from his perspective. It was more like, I mostly remember the soundtrack of him, yeah. him breathing and, 
as he, you know, ran around. It's almost like a weird stalker-like following of one, you know, instead yeah. of just the open uh-huh. the game. That was on the cover of Art Forum, wasn't it? I feel like I remember seeing that. Well, on the that's cover. the guy. He's the guy with the big with the elephant in the room. He shows it. Gagosian. Douglas Gordon. Douglas Gordon. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Sometimes it takes you're, a lot. You're of younger than I am. You, you, you <laughs> still have some of your memory. Uh, a touch. Not much. <laughs> Having kids can wipe that out pretty quick. You should have another one. You've no. only got one. You should have two. Wait, how many kids do you have? Just one. <laughs> so I speak from experience. Mine is now 36 years old. Yeah. She has a job. She's got a car. She's got a condo. She has a man. So why do you feel like you should have two? Well, two is better. Yeah, but you you had one and, and she did great. You have well, two. There's a chance one. <laughs> that's <laughs> You can both improve your odds and cut them back, I suppose. Uh, yeah, but you're batting a thousand. You shouldn't be giving people advice to have another. <laughs> just have one and, and, and mostly do it right I'm into like people should have kids when they're young in yes, their twenties. Of course, get it done with, and then you have a whole life left afterwards. You know, right. when you're young, you think, "Oh, my life is over," but you don't realize that when you hit fifty, you know, you really get get going. Yeah, I know. And when you're older and you have kids, you're grumpy about everything. You know. Maybe, yeah. Well, you get a little grumpy, especially in the city, about little things that I think when you're like 22, you don't really care about, you know. Like the weather. You don't really care about the weather until you hit like 40. You know. Then you talk about it every single day. I try to remember. <laughs> I like to remember my, say, pains from when I was younger. Because yeah. I have pains from yeah. being older. Right. And I try to remember the pains so I'll know that nothing's really changed or it's actually improved. Right. Because you don't want to feel like you're going downhill. I, I So mostly I remember in my 20s, I had a lot of trouble with the bed spinning. Oh, yeah, yeah. But I stopped drinking. Or I had a lot of trouble with hangovers. Yeah. But I stopped drinking, so I don't have those troubles anymore. That's I share that with you. Yeah. I remember that from school. I have one specific night of blacking out. Like I didn't drink a lot or do a lot of drugs. But one night I went out of college and blacked out. And I woke up the next morning... So in such pain, like every minute movement of my body felt like. Were you in a different city? N- not at a different city, but a different city. a different locale. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, I after that, I never got drunk after, like truly drunk after that. Yeah. And then you hear the stories in the ensuing days about what happened, which is weird to feel about like about what you did there's a chunk there's probably like five to six hours of consciousness in my life that I can't account for oh well, that's really interesting if you're blackout drunk I never I was never really a blackout drunk I never was either I it's just, impressive you stopped after the first time yeah that real was, alcoholics don't do that they right, keep right. trying well I wasn't a big drinker I went to a frat party where they were giving me these drinks that I didn't even realize right. I mean they were called mind erasers but I didn't realize that it was actually going to erase my mind right yeah <laughs> So I had my one experience with it, and then I moved on. Yeah. I figured it wasn't uh, worth it. I learned from my daughter when she was in her 20s that kids in their 20s, they they go out, they go and binge drink on the weekends. It's like, what do you do in your 20s? You binge drink. Right. It's kind of awesome. (laughs) (laughs) It's true to have that energy. (laughs) I can't imagine doing that. Well, okay, so let's... Let's get back to Columbia. So you graduated Columbia. I mean, were you, when did, when did art or artistic 
things sort of hit your radar? Was it when you were a kid in school? Or? Well, yes, I was. I was the kid in. I was the kid who could draw. I remember in uh, kindergarten or first grade getting praise because I would draw a high noon shootout between the bad guy and the sheriff, and I I remember my um, innovation was to put the the black kerchief and the six-pointed sheriff star on both figures and uh, so I could draw but I was always uh, I was always sort of a tortured draftsman rather than a deft one Mm -hmm. if I had been really good at it they would have sent me to the Kansas City Art Institute which is where the kids in high school from Tulsa went who could really draw instead uh, like I think in the summer when I was at college, I discovered the Gallery World mm-hmm. and Art Forum magazine and uh, just started catching up with uh, what was going on in the art business. And I took um, classes in, in, at college and two teachers were really important to me. Uh, it's funny, they're husband and wife. One is Barbara Novak, who taught a big 20th century survey course at Barnard, mm-hmm. which I took. And her husband, Brian O'Doherty, who taught a seminar at Barnard on writing art criticism. And I remember Barbara was like doing one of her lectures. It's a huge lecture hall, dark room. She's showing slides. And she mentions minimalism, and somebody says, pipes up from the audience, what's minimalism? Can you define that? And she kind of got pissed off. She said, who, is, who said that? Who said that? You know, there, she's walking back and forth on the stage, and, and the style back then in the, in the late 70s was uh, midi skirts and leather boots, and she had a, one of those long rubber tip pointers, so it was very kind of a dominatrix uh, presentation. <laughs> And, um, of course, nobody volunteered. Right. Nobody volunteered, and she got mad at the class. And I remember then, <coughs> the, the next time I'm looking at the uh, course guide, I see there's a, a class, a seminar. I think it was called Art Criticism. And I, I guess I figured that if I took that class, I could figure out what minimalism was. Yeah. And O'Doherty, at that time, uh, um, you know, he's, he had an art career, uh, not a very high-profile one, as Patrick Ireland. But he was very much an institutional player. So for a while, he was head of the visual arts department, uh, the visual arts section of the National Endowment for the Arts. And he briefly was editor of Art in America magazine. Mm -hmm. And from that seminar, uh, we started writing for, for reviews for Art in America. In that seminar, I met two people that later on we founded a magazine, Artright Magazine, 1973, mm-hmm. and uh, we founded it by applying to the Whitney Museum in- uh, Independent Study Program, right. which now is a really big deal. It's hard to get into. Yeah. Back then, it was just much more seat of the pants, yeah. and I think we, we just knocked off an application. Hey, you have an art history division and a studio division. What about art critics? We want to start an art magazine. And they let us all in. And, and so we actually got to go to the seminars that the studio uh, uh, division had. It was, it, well, they weren't seminars. They'd have artists come and visit. I remember Lawrence Wiener um, threw an art forum on the table and said, uh, 
if you want to know about my art, read this, and then conducted this kind of why are you an artist Socratic dialogue with all the young, young students. It was really intense, yeah. fabulous, because there were a lot of politi politically minded 23-year-olds um, yeah. in, the, in the class. And for the art history division, the art history group did a show at the Whitney called Museum Spelled Backwards, mm -hmm. and it was a look at the Whitney's history, and it was the last ISP show, the ISP continues today. Yeah. It was the last ISP show that was mounted in the museum itself. And we sampled, we, we, we had an exhibition that was a sample of works that the museum had bought from its annuals. And it was a fairly poor showing, right? Mm -hmm. a, a museum as guardian of the gates is bound to run behind when it comes to buying the hip works because right. they resist all the hip works yeah. so so the Whitney's purchases from its annuals was a really uneven record <coughs> and we also wanted to hang them year by year but the director of the museum John Bauer refused to let us do that because it it, it a programmatic hanging and of course in the 70s programmatic art was really hot right but a programmatic hanging was not visual according to him so we had to hang it to you know uh, so it would mix and match and look nice. But the funnest part of that experience was we got statements from staffers and board members and put them up on the wall. And I think that maybe the board chairman or one of the big shots on the board said something that was very fairly egotistical and the newspapers got a hold of it and it was a big embarrassment for him and we had to change it. Now all this happened kind of magically. I don't really remember doing any of it, yeah. but I do remember it was uh, probably the busiest time I ever had, and that was particularly rewarding. You know, when you don't really have to motivate yourself because you have so much to do. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, I mean, were you compelled to write though, or was it almost like this opportunity presented itself? Oh my. God, I don't know. Like it's the most ridiculous business to be in. So I was taking that we were taking this seminar in, in writing art criticism, and he'd give us give a, us writing exercises, and he lured us into writing. Like, why does somebody do that? I guess I I thought I had something to say, or maybe you know you look at the art world and it's this fortress, and you have to find a way in. Mm -hmm. And being an art critic is one way to find a way in yeah and um, later on I realized that when you're an artist you have you're an expert on one thing yourself right. right but as an art critic you can be an expert on many things and it's like being a an, an, uh, colonial explorer you can go go places and see things and claim them for yourself right all you have to do is is look at the show and have something interesting to say and that's yours you can engage in that content and it's not like your work you know an art writer gets to talk about many many things right. an art an, uh, an artist gets to talk about one thing right an art uh, art critic gets to know a lot of things know about things an art artist only knows about one thing and i think in a way critics it's it's become diluted criticism it's become confused there's so much of the writing is promotional or institutional yeah but you do have a handful of critics or you do have this this sort of hardcore criticism where the 
the critic wrong or right at least is only speaking for themselves yeah and trying to be trying to be honest and not really trying to puff things i mean there's there's so much puff puffing puffery written and and it's not to say that it's bad but uh it's just so so much more interesting to have a, a critical independent voice yeah. and hear what they have to say right. you know and know that there's not some kind of institutional weight behind it like wall labels or like or like press releases or even like a lot of the writing that you read in art magazines yeah you know yeah it's changed a lot even since i started showing i feel like well i guess the internet does that too you kind of explodes the voices out there and there's a lot more promotion through writing well i'm already uncomfortable that i'm generalizing because it's not at all monolithic there's tons of different kinds of stuff so it makes me a little bit uncomfortable and of course you know i was paid to read art criticism for several decades Mm -hmm. and now that i'm not being paid to read it i'm i'm really kind of not interested in doing it it's like homework and i think to myself I used to get paid to read this stuff, and now I'm supposed to read it for free? I don't think so. Yeah. So I have uh, the nice people at Art Forum have me on their on their comp list, so I get Art Forum in the mail, and it's piling up. It's piling up on the shelf, unread. You know, it's like a promise to the future, a promise to myself, something I'm going to do. I'm going to know things. I'm going to learn things. Of course, at my age, the the uh, ambition is, is fading away. You know, it's sort of like, oh, it's too late for any of that. I can just lay, lean back and take it easy. I don't have to know that. Or like Mr. Natural says, if you uh, don't know by now, you don't worry about it. Yeah. <laughs> well, do you also, since you are an artist as well, do you feel like a lot of your visual time you want to spend it? making your work and doing your thing as opposed to constantly, you know, ingesting other thoughts and ideas? Well, it's true. The the studio work is really demanding. Yeah. It's hard to read a lot when you're using your eyes to paint a lot. I guess, well, audiobooks we have now and things like that. Well, in AA, you call it a luxury problem. There's too many things that you want to do. Yeah. I mean, there's tons of tons of things that are worth doing I mean I have a lot of pictures I, I want to paint and I have a lot of books that I need to read and for a while there when I was writing it, um, when I was writing I, I had this idea that I wanted to be out there and play with the big shots if there's an important show coming along I wanted to have a, a review I wanted to have a text on it that was not only before everybody else but smarter and better right. and of course being, being a typical art egomaniac, I think I achieved that several times, but it, it's so much work. You know, it's so much work, and today I've left most of the art writing in the dust, although I still sort of dream about being out there and saying things that I think need to be said. Yeah. But uh, the pull of the studio is, is so strong, and it's, in a way, it's uh, so much... Uh, more fun to sit in front of an easel or stand right. in front of an easel rather than sit at a word processor. You know, I say, like people say, why did you stop painting in the 80s? Because I had a, I had a very um, fertile period in the first half of the 80s and switch over to writing. And it's like, well, I, I wanted a job where I could sit down. And, but, uh, uh, you know, Maybe I'll, maybe I'll go back. Never say never. Yeah. 
I still, I still, I still like the the engagement, the intellectual engagement. Right. Well, not to to also generalize, but I feel like when you were coming to age as a you know getting interested in writing about art. At that point, it seemed like art writing was really integral to the development of certain people's work, or it was like really had a lot of weight to it. And there's a prevailing thought that these days, you don't even have to read certain, you know, reviews that seem to make someone's work important. Now it could be Instagram followers or their social media following or whatever. And that has shaped or changed our criticism. That's right. They say a, a good Instagram's more important than a review in the New York Times. Exactly. And it's very I'm, interesting. It, whether that's good or bad, what it, no matter what that is, it is a thought which matters. Do you know what I mean? That matters. That that's a thought out there. That you know that art criticism now people might think is less important to someone's development in a career or less important to their body of work. You know what I think is funny about that is that you can't really tell the difference whether it's the arc of history that's changed or whether it's your own personal outlook that's changed. Yeah. So in the 70s when I'm reading about all the things in contemporary art that are important, you have all these art movements that happened in the 60s, you know, minimalism, pop art, conceptual art, right. color field, all these things happened and it seemed like they were very important because you re you read the the seminal texts, the the writers who defined them. And now we're in a now we're in a in a place where we don't seem to have movements, right? We've had there there have been there are different movements, of course, but it, they don't seem. It seems like the teleology has disappeared. We're yeah. in a period of pluralism, and I remember in the eighties, plural, pluralism was a terrible thing. the The October crowd invade against pluralism because it was like. This idea that everything is good, this democratic idea, didn't suit them. They yeah. wanted art that had some kind of certain kind of political. It was it was sort of Frankfurt School. It had to somehow upset upset the apple cart. Now, of course, anything anything goes. And so, what happened? And I wrote this on Artnet at one point. Is that instead of having art movements, we have market movements. And that's the most notable thing has been the rise of the influence of the market, where, like you say, the art criticism isn't important. It's all of a sudden these artists you've never heard of are selling selling at auction for millions of dollars, and suddenly their work is relevant, even if you, even if you don't care about it, you need to take account of it. Right. Right. Even if you think it's bad, you still need to take account of it if you're going to be relevant. I think it's a minority view. I think most people, most people would rather just dismiss the market. But in my mind, the market is a really clear measure, you know, by price. And if you're not paying attention to, to what it's doing, it's going to sneak up behind you and smack you on the head. Yeah. So, but the most important thing is, I think I got this idea from, from Donald Cuspett that we're in what he called a modernist endgame in that it's a pluralist period, sort of everything has been done. We were raised on the idea of, of artistic revolutions and, and revolutions aren't really possible anymore. Of course they are, but you could only make small lateral moves. All the big pieces on the board have been taken and there's nothing but little pawns that can move one way this way or one way that way. So 
the the aesthetics is say spreading out laterally mm-hmm. so where you had Ad Reinhardt making the final black paintings now you have black paintings made by black artists mm-hmm. so it, it's not like they're they're blacker than the black than Ad Reinhardt's paintings or they're more minimalist but they come from a different place they come from a, a, a black American experience so the the surface is um, the surface looks like it's it's made out of shoe polish or that it's it's applied with a broom handle mm-hmm. so I'm thinking of some works by Rashid Johnson right. that were in that show at the Museum of Modern Art a couple of years ago the forever now mm-hmm. so you get a sense of like this opening up this pluralistic opening up and sideways spreading of some of these aesthetics like an aesthetic that a white male artist did 30 years ago can be made new today if it's made by a a black American artist or a woman or any kind of artist so maybe that's just an illusion right this kind of this kind of horizontal spread of aesthetic taste I don't know that that's being brought into reality by the popularity, the popularity of art, and and the the fact that it's growing. Um, the art business is just growing and growing. We have uh, you know thousands of new art MFAs every year, mm-hmm. and now there's art in every city, and it's just like an intensely crowded field at this point. Right. Well, I think there's there's a lot of people who probably didn't feel invited to the game for a long time. You know what I mean? Of different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different you know women. Uh, you know, to where now it's kind of like there's a more of an opening for people to make work. So it's got. I think in its language, the development of language in general, which art is just a language, it's like maybe there's less words being developed at this point, but there's more. You know, people are just changing around the words to say different things. I think the same thing happens in music. You don't see like new genres of music coming out that much, but you see reshuffling and different sort of adding different ingredients of different styles of music to create new music. Do you know what I mean? I think it, it's kind of mirroring artwork in that sense. That could be, I, I'm sure that's true. The thing about music that's the music is like magical. Music is some kind of weird language. I don't even understand it. I don't even understand how it works. You know, mm-hmm. it's like it's like consciousness itself. It's like mathematics. It's like completely different, a complete different language. Uh, art or painting at least seems, seems like you can parse it, you can figure it out, you can analyze it. With, with music, you know, where does it come from? Why do we even like it? Yeah. Why does it even appeal to us? It's, it's like as big a mystery as the mystery of consciousness itself, like right. where consciousness comes from. Uh, but, but, um, or love or desire or like very primal emotive things I, that just... I know feel, that uh, you know? I, I know that that rap music all sounds alike to me, and that that when I listen to Kendrick Lamar, who won a Pulitzer, right? Is that what he won? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or Nobel? He won a Pulitzer, Pulitzer. Mm-hmm. and it sounded to me like the same kind of auto tune narrative about getting over and and being a success and getting girls. It, it didn't sound that different, although people who really pay close attention to it. Uh, insists that it, it really has something special. Oh, it, and I, I think this, there's a parallel with the visual arts yeah. that outsiders look at it and think, 
you know, what the hell is this? It's the same uh, as the stuff that was done uh, at right. the beginning of the century. Yeah. And in a way, you know, they're right. But if you take a deeper look, you see those subtle differences. It's like for someone who listens to jazz, they're like, ah, it just all sounds the same, just banging on drums and tooting horns. But it's totally different. Like Coltrane's different than like, you know, Big Spiderback or something. And it's a completely different language, different sensibility. But if you're not studying it or you're not like really, it's like any language. You know, if you go to China and you don't speak Cantonese, you're gonna be like, it all sounds like the same thing. You know, it's like, I can't understand it. And then when you start to learn it, you're like, oh, there's a lot of differences here. Do you know? Yeah. That's language. Right? Yeah. You have to partake and study it and really get into it to understand the, the idiosyncrasy. So you get out of it what you put into it, exactly. right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, somehow art is supposed to be beyond that, right? I'm the really, not, really it? great art is supposed to overwhelm you even even if you know nothing about it. And a lot, of course, a lot of it does, right? I think so. I think it's just different kinds of art, just like different kinds of music. There's the pop song that can just connect to anyone. And then there's the or- Ornette Coleman's of the world who are really sort of breaking down sonic textures that is not going to appeal to a ton of people, but it's interesting to those who are, want to push the idea of what music can be further. And that obviously is not going to uh, connect with everyone, you know. So does, a, does universality necessitate something that's greater than something else? Or does something that is um, self-referential and hyper-studious mean that it's better than other forms of expression. I don't think it's either or. I think it depends on where the listener or viewer comes into the race, you know what I mean? Like what they're invested in. And that's the beauty of it, is that it's malleable and it's not solidified, it's not definable, it's vague. And that's kind of why we do it, right? Isn't that why we make art? Because if we really wanted to just say something, we would just say, it's cold out, or I like that. <laughs> I don't know, you, t- you said, you, you told me before you teach a class that asks that question. Right. Did you, did you come up with any answer? I, to, to me, all I know is that if you, if you look at it, what, anthropologically, there's always some kind of artifact involved in the earliest traces of human civilization. There's either like body adornment or jewelry or cave paintings. Mm-hmm. It was always part of it. It was always part of what made humans human, and it, it's as mysterious. It's as mysterious as anything. You know, I watch these. Uh, I watch all these TV shows a lot, a lot from England, and they're like soap operas. And the one of the things I keep noticing is the tyranny of the plot. Mm-hmm. Even if you don't really like the show or you don't really care about it or you can guess everything's going to turn out okay, yeah. the tyranny of the plot demands that you keep listening. You want to find out what happens. Even if you can probably guess what's going to happen, it's going to turn out okay because that's the way they do entertainment. But where does this tyranny of the plot come from? Of course, it's like the root of civilization. If we if we didn't suddenly relate to other people as characters and care about their story and care about what's going on, we wouldn't have a society. So somehow that's like hardwired. Yeah. This, this like seeing a group of people, identifying with characters, wanting, caring about what happens to them. This is like weirdly hardwired. So art is somewhere in there hardwired as well. I, it's a great analogy because I think it's just... Uh, human nature to try to understand 
who and what we are. Yeah, human, like if you think about kids, nature. kids drawing like stick figures, you know, it's just kind yes. of like they all do it. And it's because they're just kind of trying to come to terms with like what we are. Yes. Well, that whole thing about childhood art is so amazing. But uh, that's always been my alibi for what my, uh, my own stuff is that it has this biological or evolutionary like element in it. Like, uh, say, I, want, I painted cats, mm-hmm. or I guess you could say Jeff Koons painted puppies. Yeah. Kind of an 80s idea, even though the 80s uh, aesthetic, say, is all about, um, it's all about uh, the, the structure of language and representations and human society. And the, it was all about how nothing is natural, everything is constructed. And, of course, like any good artist I didn't like that idea I wanted to do the opposite so everything had a element of biology in it like painting painting a cat a kitten that half the people in the world are going to look at the picture of the kitten and like it and it's because kit cats have evolved to appeal to humans so all those elements of desire like are sort of a sub theme in the paintings I try to do that uh, it, it's like various ways of of putting wants into the work and things people want, whether it's um, uh, love and desire and romance or hungers of various kinds, you know. That's, so that was always my alibi that it was uh, biological, right, rather than cultural. Yeah, but you know, the cultural apparatus sits on top of the biology. Yeah, because so, well, a lot of the iconography of your work seems referential to a certain kind of era or a vibe to, like, you know. Well, the, the pulp stuff, the 40s and 50s stuff, what I thought was kind of interesting was about that is the, the Oedipal quality of it, that it's not really my fantasy, mm-hmm. my dreams, it's my father's dreams and fantasies. So it's the, it's the imaginary of the, of the era I was born into. Right. It's not really my own. Did that weigh, like what does that mean to you though? Did it weigh on you or did it fascinate you? Or how, like how did you... What is your dialogue with that imagery? Yeah, it's not at all theoretical. In fact, um, uh, in the 70s, I was messing around with a lot of different things as an artist. Mm-hmm. You know, I had, a, I had to earn my living, so I was working. And um, we were doing the, the art magazine. I was living in Soho. And uh, it's interesting, there were three of us. And um, it's the 70s, and we're young. We're in our 20s. So everybody's having a romance with each everybody else. Mm-hmm. And there's like one woman and two men, and you can imagine what happens. So there was a big blow up, and the other guy split, went back to law school, became a big businessman banker. And um, this, this art historian wanted to put together a history of the magazine, uh, Art Right Magazine. It was mostly during the 70s, from about 73 to 77. But he didn't want to talk about it. He's finished. He left that 70s behind. I take credit for the fact that he became a banker and big international <laughs> success. Right. of course. And um, the, woman, the woman went on to her own career, but she died a few years ago, sadly. Mm-hmm. Um, and why did I start telling that story? Where was I? You were talking about the 70s, and like it's... What was different about the 70s? Yeah, no, I've forgotten. In relation to your dad's uh, era of pulp aesthetics and what that Oh, so I was just desire. telling you how 
so so um, in the 70s, I was I was doing making different kinds of art, trying to figure out what to do. You know, I loved I loved uh, uh, color field painting. I loved Frank Stella, or, um, Morris Lewis, um, Kenneth Noland, and I was messing around with that. And you know, in the 70s, everybody was also people were making films. A bunch of my friends had uh, cinema, so I made some Super 8 films. But then in in say 78 or 79, I decided I wanted to learn how to paint like the covers of these pulp paperback books, mm-hmm. which which now are every, everywhere and there's there's big publications about them and and they're archived online, all the different illustrations. But back in the 70s, you could buy them for a dime and at thrift shops and they were disappearing. Right. So I thought, oh, well, this is a, a preservationist effort and I love the style. Mm-hmm. It's a kind of illustrative style. It um, doesn't have avant-garde pretensions. This is what I thought. I was... I, I wanted to move away from what I consider the radical masquerade, mm-hmm. where artists are pretending they're doing something radical. Right. I wanted to have something that was just illustrative and that would just illustrate certain ideas. And what I wanted to illustrate was was passions, was you know these feelings of of desire. And uh, so the funny thing about it is that I started making these paintings. I was just copying the the book covers. Not because really I was some kind of postmodernist, mm-hmm. but I, th- I had this idea that I would teach myself to paint by copying these models. That's what, yeah. you know, that's a classic uh, right. painterly enterprise. But what happened was that, uh, I mean, people would come by and see them. People would be visiting us because of the magazine or whatever reason. And before long, um, Helene Weiner, who I'd, I'd known from the 70s when she was director of Artist Space, Helene Weiner called me up and asked me if I had anything for a group show, and I brought it over, mm-hmm. brought some things over, and that's when I had, because of that, I had a couple of shows at Metro Pictures, and, um, you know, the, I guess the, the circumstances of the time, there was a kind of return to painting and a return to figuration. Yeah. The 70s had been all about, uh, once again, this sort of horizontal, interdisciplinary spread where um, painting, painting and, and sculpture had kind of reached its an end point. So the art world was embracing dance and there was video art and, and artist books in the 70s. All the artists were making artist books. And uh, there was performance. Artists were doing performance. And by the end of the 70s, the, the, there was this thirst for painting yeah. as there was a, f- a famous big survey show in, in, in Germany I think it was called The Hunger for Painting The Thirst for Painting so that was happening too so so the idea of, of a renewed figuration was happening did you and have a studio in the city at this time or what or I was living on, on Wooster Street uh-huh. like uh, a live work loft situation first first I, ha- I moved to uh, Reed Street in Tribeca in 1973 I had a loft there and then when I started working on uh, Art Right Magazine I moved into the the loft on Wooster Street, which was at, at number 149, right next to Paula Cooper. Yeah. So Soho was the hip art space then, and mm-hmm. we had a, a big loft on the top floor that uh, my partner and her husband, mm-hmm. uh, that was Edit Dayok and Peter Grass, had, had built this big loft. And so I moved in there. I think the rent was $163 a month. And um, 
I lived there. I lived there until 1980. Yeah. When <clears throat> once again the romance, a romantic disappointment entered in, and I oh, moved yeah. out and went over to to Ludlow Street on the Lower East Side, mm-hmm. and uh, I lived in a little apartment there for a while, and that's about when I think. Uh, so Artright Magazine was over, and I got involved in this group, Collaborative Projects, and we did a real estate show in, you know, Christmas Eve, uh, 1979, no, New Year's Eve, 1979, and then the, the Times Square show in 1980 in, in June. Mm-hmm. And I was working at Art in America at that point, I think. And um, How was it then? How was that operation? Was it big or was it a pretty small operation? Well, it was a it was a gang of people. Yeah, collaborative projects was about fifty people, and some of them, you know, all of them were. Well, I don't know how to how to talk about it. The uh, personally, I was not a very politically minded person. Mm-hmm. I was more of a bohemian, more uh, a, uh, a dual major. Yeah, goofing around. <laughs> but other members of the group were fairly politi- politicized. Yeah. And one of the interesting things about the Times Square show, I remember, is that Tom Otterness, who um, now shows with Marlboro, mm-hmm. at the time he was really against the idea of being part of the gallery system. Oh, really? If you can believe that, I, I can. in the 70s, <laughs> there was a strong sentiment, anti-gallery sentiment among young artists. Well, how was Tom they making... They didn't want to be part of it. Was he just showing his work? Well, he, he wanted to do public things. Yeah. And and Tom did that for yeah. a long, long time. He 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 still kind of focuses on public installations, but uh, in the seventies there was this whole conceptual thing of of d- the dematerialization of the art object, yeah. because uh, it was it was tainted by being a commodity. Right. You know that sentiment still continues a little bit, although. Yeah. Seems like everybody's chasing the buck. Right. I think even then, even back in the in the sixties and seventies, everybody was was chasing the buck and was very ambitious. Even though, um, uh, even though to me as a young artist, uh, like the the public rhetoric was very high minded and and politically oriented. When I came onto the art scene. Artists were demonstrating against the Vietnam War, mm-hmm. and artists were demonstrating against the Metropolitan Museum, and um, and you think that that everybody's engaged in these sort of higher philosophical political battles, and that you you think well, this is too stupid to go into. But I remember thinking that my particular insight was that my generation of younger artists wanted to get over wanted to be successes. And that's what set them apart. And what I, what it really meant was that I didn't just didn't know the older generation and their ambitions enough because all artists are very ambitious. You don't right. you don't get ahead in the art business unless you're really ambitious. Jerry Seinfeld said it about comedies, like who becomes a successful comic or who who becomes a who goes into comedy and he says the ones the people who want to the people who want it are the ones right. who, who get it. Um, although we do kind of have a, a myth in the art world of the um, reluctant genius. Cezanne, you know, people. I, yeah, I think it's people, fading these days. Yeah, these hermits. Right. These hermits that are great artists. So we do have geniuses. that myth. Yeah. But if you look at the art world today, it's shot through with ambition. Yeah. And 
Oh, everyone's branding their work, and you know, I think it's starting to become generationally more just part of, you know, not just thinking about being an artist, just your own brand as like a human. It's like people are promoting everything they do online, and you know, I think it's just starting to become more of an accepted uh, way of life or something, or way that we think about, you know, sharing. It's it is fascinating. Uh, what you know, I'm, I'm I'm trying to catch up and finally understand Cezanne, so I'm reading some books about Cezanne, and and one of the things that seems clear is that he wanted to be original. He wanted to do something that was totally different, that was totally his own. And um, you see that you see that today, but it seems to be it seems to be a marketing strategy more yeah. than anything. I mean, so much art is a, is can be categorized as a kind of intellectual decor. It's a like a status symbol that looks good in your house and identifies you as a hip person, right? As cosmopolitan and as somebody who's wealthy and as somebody who has a member of an in group, yeah, who can understand things that that most people can't understand, right? And it's easy to feel like this stuff is produced, new art is produced specifically for that reason. Mm-hmm. And I gotta say, I relate to it. When uh, you know, when I see when I see an art form that l- something new, uh, new some new work that looks good and it's also really clever. Yeah, that is a way that that hasn't been done before. Something, something that well, I keep saying, I keep repeating new, but the idea is that it presents something that you haven't seen before, and. Um, it's it seems so instrumentalized now. It doesn't seem to have some kind of mystical inner imperative, which which Cezanne, you know, as he grew older, uh, he seemed really cryptic and mystical. And yeah. uh, uh, but at the beginning, he really just wanted to do his own thing more than anything. Yeah. Well, I think with that, and the difference might be that those people were cultivating, you know, a kind of like. A, a body of work or ideas about work from the inside that was gestating over a long period of time where some of this newer stuff feels like I just found this cool new way of putting paint on the canvas that no one's really done yet yeah it's not it's breaking out of the the boundaries of the canvas if you have um, yeah I can't remember anybody's names like that there's a show of that the the guy at he did these grisai mountains and he had a huge show of the show of these huge canvases at Gagosian, and they were they had been used as as drop cloths. Right? Oh right. Um, so so it broke out of the like normal use of the canvas. Right. Or um, what's the name of that artist? He he makes vacuum form plastic molds of something like he'll throw his jacket on the vacuum form and. And he'll make a vacuum form of it. Oh, I don't know this. And, yeah, he's very famous. I'm so useless. It cost him like a dollar to make, and they traded auction for uh, five, six figures now. <laughs> and um, I remember the first time I saw one. Like he'll put a rope, and it'll be a big, a big vertical 
uh, rectangle with the, with the imprint of a rope mm-hmm. done vacuum form on plastic and you think what the hell is that supposed to be right. and then and you see that it sold for $70,000 at auction and you think damn that was smart right you know that's smart and um, now was it smart by him or does he just have a really good dealer who's pushing that work well, you can't underestimate the power of a good dealer. There are top dealers who really play in the in the fields of Olympus, and then there are all the rest of us. Yeah, so. I mean, there's a. I have friends. There's a running joke that in some of these blue chip galleries, you could just go take a dump in the corner and sell it for eighty thousand dollars. Well, that's <laughs> a very cynical approach. Thank you. The uh, the funny thing is that I guess it's social. It's context. Right? It's, it's all very social. Yeah. Uh, who the dealer is, who his friends are, whose collectors are. You're talking about these incredibly rich people who can drop 50000 or more on, a, on an artwork just on the say-so of the dealer. And they would do it just like I would. We would trade catalogs. Yeah. They, you know, it's like, he's my pal. He's right. selling this guy, this work by this gal, say, for $50,000. Uh-huh. I'll buy it. Yeah. And, and that's a relatively small circle but everybody follows their lead yeah there's a painter that david zwerner shows really well i shouldn't talk about that but i mean it's anyway it's stupid the art world you know (laughs) the art market um a quick side note I feel like music does the same thing too because there's a great musicians who are doing stuff and then there's also these like mega record labels that will form a band write their music for them and parade them out there and it's catchy hooks you know they bring in good people or whatever and it's kind of like yeah. you know it's, it's hard to tell the difference but then some people could say back in you know the 60s the 50s and 60s where some of these you know critics who are writing so intensely about a certain kind of work that artists were doing did they prop it up just as now maybe a blue chip dealer is propping up the work do you know what i'm saying like it's oh, yeah. chicken and egg i mean it i don't don't think i think you know most of us don't know or forgotten about the uh importance that uh clement greenberg had in the yeah. 40s and 50s he was clearly uh the leading art critic of the time and he formulated an aesthetic, this kind of formalist idea that the, that paintings should or art should refer to its own own what natural material reality that was really influential. Yeah, and I think also promoting American art. He was really influential in a way that we haven't had anybody who's that influential in um, as since, unless you count Jerry Saltz. Right. Who has uh, a very 21st century digital uh, era kind of influence? Definitely. I'm not sure what his position is as a as a critic. What kinds of things he likes? I'm not sure. But um, I think he likes the whole thing. He he loves just the whole bit. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's hard to say. It's hard to say. He engages in it fully. I mean, he is all over social media. That's right. Media. Maybe you can say then that he's definitely the uh, pluralist art critic. Yeah. Definitely the endgame modernist art critic. Right. Because he's invaded against super large galleries. He's invented uh, clusterfuck aesthetics. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has something something interesting to say. He's got dozens of, fo- you know, dozens. He's got hundreds of followers. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Thousands and thousands. Yes. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, it's interesting criticism, isn't it? <laughs> I don't know. Or is it? It's, the thing that always shocks me is just how, I guess it's because there's not a big support structure for it, but how small of a world it is, really. Or at least of people who are, you know, I'm not talking about bloggers or people writing like little paragraphs here and there, but like intense art criticism, how small of a population that is of people doing it. Well, I mean, you'd have to be a better student of art forum than, than I am to really know about that because art forum is filled with articles by all kinds of critics. Typically when you, uh, and I don't like this, but typically when you see conversations about criticism, you're, they, they mention the most famous established names, the yeah. people who have real jobs, like the writers for the New York Times or the writer for uh, the New Yorker. Yeah. But in fact, there are so many young critics writing, especially for Art Forum, That's true. I think. That's true. There used to be more magazines. Um, and I don't know, I don't know these people. Right. I don't know them. I'm too old. They're all young. They have their own thing. Yeah. So, but maybe it's just a perception that since they're not doing it repeatedly and you don't or you don't see their name all over the place that you don't even realize that there's people committed to it for a long time or something. Yeah, well, you know, I'm just not a measure of this stuff. Yeah, me neither. One of the one of the things I tell myself when I feel overwhelmed is is uh, just don't think about it. Just go in the studio and work and don't think about it. And I think uh, I find affirmation with that as I look around, you know, um, Agnes Martin, mm -hmm. you know, at her Guggenheim retrospective, there she is on video talking about emptying her mind and painting without thinking and how she can go a whole morning some days without thinking anything. And uh, I got to admit, there's this real appeal, right? You want to yeah. be engaged in the discourse and you want to be important. Another friend of mine, uh, who's a figure painter, figurative painter, was surprised when the Baltus show at the Metropolitan maybe a decade ago. Mm -hmm. He thought it would have really, a really wide effect. It would change the conversation totally, right. but it didn't at all. Right. But uh, why am I talking about that? Like the idea that you're going to be part of the conversation. You know, if you're if you're a serious contemporary artist, you have to be part of the conversation. You can't just retire in your studio and work for years. Right. Uh, that seems futile, right? right? You want to be a part of the the daily conversation. As a professional artist, you want to be showing every year. Yeah. You want your work to make some kind of an impact. Isn't that like the Baudelaire thing? Like an artist must be of one's time. But yes. good art is an unconscious representation of your ideological I age. I can tell you're a teacher. <laughs> no, but I mean, you know, you want to be of your time, you know? Yes. But that, that Agnes Martin thing is a beautiful, like, that's such a, um, I, I totally agree with you. That's an enviable position to be in mentally, to think about work, to be able then to she went and moved into the desert and well, it's a very Buddhist, wasn't part of her time at all, it's right? a, Yeah, it's a very Buddhist sentimentality, you know, of like emptying out and, and not yeah. being cluttered by all that day-to-day. -day those those grids are like so not of their time. Yeah are so untopical, non-topical. But they're timeless, though. They can relate to everything in a, in a more simple way. Do you I know guess. what I mean? I guess. Stuff like that, you can really, art like that, you can really see that it's an empty vessel that we pour meaning into. You know, yeah. It's so strange that, that we devote so much uh, attention to 
what, gridded lines on a canvas? Right. Washes yeah, but at the same color. time, okay, I'll give you a good example of a counterpoint to that. Okay. So that seems very empty and like, oh, we're going to pay attention to these Agnes Martin paintings, which seem so devoid of content, you know, but they're beautiful and they're peaceful and that's content. But if, if I look at one of the opposite side of the spectrum uh, pieces of art that shook me or had the most sort of flip effect on me was the uh, Dial History video by uh, Johan Grimnopers. You know, it was a Deitch project, the history of hijacking, that video. Mm-hmm. When I saw that when I was an undergraduate student, it was like scared the shit out of me. It, it had the total, it felt so topical, so tied into what's going on in a world that I didn't really know about, you know, about these hijackings in the Middle East and, you know, things that I wasn't aware of. Now, did you see the one that Thomas Hirshhorn did about yeah. all the beheadings? Mm-hmm. Mm. So the, the content there, right is so topical it's so of it's it's poignant it's laid before you but in the same way that's just humans doing things and us commenting on that what's the difference between commenting on a grid and commenting on things like that you know what i mean it's it's just one is a little more focused into that one is more of the stick figure that the kid's drawing of another human and the other kid is just drawing expressively lines and over and over again and that's saying a similar thing it's just yeah. You know, do you know what I mean? Yeah. That's why I, I can, I really love Agnes Martin and I really love, you know, an artist like who's doing work on the other side of the spectrum. Yeah. I guess Agnes Martin is like more of an escape. Exactly. And, and uh, what's his name? Grimman Prez? Yeah. Is that how you say it? Grimman Prez? Yeah. Is, uh, I don't know. You're either like watching the news and lamenting about it, or you can turn on a baseball game and just enjoy it. <laughs> but I, wasn't Agnes Martin the one who said too that everything's about beauty, either the lack of beauty in the world or the beauty in the world? Yeah, I don't know. But that's a good analogy for his work versus her work. His is about this, you know, the unbeautiful. I remember seeing seeing that seeing that slideshow and being annoyed that um, so he collected all this this uh, newsreel footage of and assembled it all together and laid and a disco track to part of being it being annoyed that he was inflicting it on me as an artwork oh yeah I, well I wasn't annoyed I wasn't savvy enough about global issues to even be annoyed I was shocked by it but it it woke me up to like hey there's other deep shit going on in the world that you don't know about and to see it in the context of art was weird to me but it opened my eyes up to something you yeah. know I don't I didn't like it necessarily <laughs> It's funny, today when I see videos like that, and, and I, think I, I think there was just a show at the New Museum of this British photographer and filmmaker. Um, his name's John. John, I'm, I'm embarrassed. What's his name? I don't know if I saw the show. John Afrocoma. Sam here, I have it. John Akomfra. Mm-hmm. John Akomfra. And uh, he's doing a lot of a lot of history from a, a black Englishman's point of view. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of footage assembled, random footage with no narration. And I actually miss the narration. So I would look back on that grim on prey and wonder like where 
where is the frame that allows us to make sense of what's going on that analyzes it and reports on it. So I'm actually pushing this avant-garde artwork back into a very much more conventional framework. Like, what's the name of that guy who does the TV documentaries on, on the Civil War? Ken the, Burns? Ken Burns. So I'm, I want to Ken Burnsize these things. Yeah. I want, I want a, a, a coherent narrative to tell me what I'm seeing. I don't want just impressions, horrible impressions. It's like a nightmare as opposed to, you know, a, a waking thought. Well, I think I would imagine he's interested in not only the the sort of um, explicit visuals and the way that the news media. You know what? It ends up being about. an alibi. That uh, oh, they're so beautiful. The visuals are so beautiful. I could watch it forever. Right. And. That's like an alibi for not having any true engagement. I don't know. You can talk circles around this stuff. I'm sorry. Uh, no, it's it's really interesting stuff. <laughs> At least to me, that's a really interesting dynamic. But uh, the 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 example that you you cite between abstraction that's removed from reality or that provides some kind of harbor, safe harbor and things that are really topical and awful, that's, that like speaks to our current mo- moment mm-hmm. where um, everything, every artwork, it seems, needs to come with a topical rationale. Right. Like every artwork, even if when you look at it, you don't realize it, but it has some kind of meaning, uh, some kind of political meaning. Yeah, but what about all this zombie formalism stuff that you... Well, this is, what, <laughs> this is what happened. Like... When zombie formalism became a thing, it's like it snuffed out the the idea of this uh, formalist process-based abstraction yeah. painting that was just sort of about its own procedures. It snuffed it out and instead gave us work with social political meaning, like in uh, Last Whitney Biennial, like there was a rationale for everything, yeah. whether it was a room full of trees that were all different or a wall that was about how artists are underpaid mm-hmm. or and all those shows seem to have their alibi was that they meant something so I think that goes on that goes on now even though there's tons of abstract painting yeah you know, the, the market loves that kind of stuff but the market the market loves everything yeah so. it seems to be cyclical too right like I don't it, know doesn't it just cycle I don't know the stock market supposedly, the economy supposedly goes in cycles. I don't know when, when, it seems to me that when people say, oh, figurative painting is back in fashion, right. that that doesn't seem to be really, that doesn't seem to be a realistic judgment or an accurate judgment. It's just sort of a rhetorical position. Wasn't it seems kind just, of silly. Isn't that just the fad of people paying attention to it? It's just a fad. Right. It's just a fad. Everyone's out there making it all the time. Everyone's out there making abstraction all the time. It's just a fad of like whoever's buying it more or paying attention to it more or writing about it more. I don't even know what attention is anymore. That's a great point. I mean, I don't know what it amounts to. You know, the, there's this funny thing about this museum in Los Angeles. I went to Los Angeles once, yeah. 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. I stayed in Santa Monica, like part that looks like an actual town. <laughs> right. And 
but there's this museum in in Los Angeles, the LA MoCA, yeah. and apparently they've had several directors over the past 15 years. Right. Apparently they ran out of money, and these directors do these different shows, and there's this big identity crisis about the museum in Los Angeles. People are writing articles, well, they need to do this, they need to do that. Mm -hmm. And here I am sitting in New York, looking at the museum, and it seems to me, they do, it's a museum, they do museum shows, yeah. and whether there's a director as this guy or that guy or anybody, it doesn't really matter. You know, they'll do a Carl Andre show, they do a street art show, you know, it's what museums do, they yeah, do shows. Art. <laughs> so, you know, I like this kind of, uh, what a, this attention we're talking about, it seems completely, once again, you have an empty vessel that people right. are pouring meaning into. You know, uh, it, from a distance, like they assess these various directors' records, and it seems like they have in their mind that Jeffrey Deitch was terrible. Yeah. And that, I don't know, the French guy, Vern, was, I don't know what, you know, he was too male-oriented or something. Mm -hmm. It seems to me like, they're just shows like any other place. <laughs> Everybody does shows. Well, people love to bitch about stuff. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, everybody's, uh, I don't know. Is it too cynical to say that everybody's like got their own agenda and that, that they're really angling for something that benefits them? You talk, people talk in terms of, of, ethics and morality, what's right, what should be, what's smart, but really they're just angling for what yeah. serves them. Yep. I mean, it, I remember realizing like as a teenager that, that the rightness of arguments was a fiction and that what determined the argument was the position you were trying to put across. Right. Yeah. That you have this position that you're in favor of and then you devise the argument to, to, to back it up. It's not like the argument itself has any reality or any force. Yeah, the agenda um, is set going into it. <laughs> I don't know what I'm talking about. You well, know. Well, let's change the subject. What do you listen to when you're in this? Do you listen to music while you work? Yeah, I'm like anybody. I listen to uh, podcasts. I listen to music. I don't really like WNYC anymore. Mm -hmm. It's too middle of the road for me. It annoys me. But what I try to do is keep up with new fiction. I listen to books on tape, I listen to Audible. So uh, it's, it's funny how with, with painting, I can have a narration going on in my head about a different subject yeah. and continue with the painting. Right. For instance, if you're, if you're writing an article, you can't have a separate narration Everything's going on off. in your head. No, no, you gotta But you can do that like when you're driving or maybe when you're working in the studio, right. although, some, some texts occupy a more complicated audible space than others yeah. and they need more attention. Some, some texts, you know, I find I really have to listen to or I lose place, my place. Yeah. But uh, that's, that's pretty much what I do. Um, uh, so where can people, do you have anything that you wanna share with people as far as like where your work will be out there, where they can see your work firsthand? Oh my God, I'm working on a couple of projects right now, but mm -hmm. mostly I'm just trying to figure out what to do. Yeah. Um, trying to make some good paintings, trying to catch up. Uh, um, you know, uh, Vito Schnabel uh, gave me a show in his gallery in San Moritz mm -hmm. last summer, and that was really good for me. Vito's fabulous, and um, he's younger than my daughter. I kind of like that. Yeah. And, uh, 
he's participating in this uh, small art fair in November at on Long Island. Uh -huh. It's the Bridge Art Fair, and right. it's at this really cool uh, golf club called the Bridge, and mm -hmm. they're also having like an some kind of antique car show there. Oh, nice! So I have that's what the pickup is now. He's right. picking up a couple paintings for that, uh -huh. and then there's a couple of other projects I'm working on, works for. Yeah. So uh, there's that. But enjoying time in the studio, right? It's not that enjoyable. It's torture. Well, I didn't say enjoying with like <laughs> quotes. <laughs> it's torture. I like to look at the my inventory and I think, oh, those are good paintings. Why do I still own them? <laughs> yes. Well, so I had a I had a couple of really good years because of Jeffrey Deitch and Vito uh -huh. and some other dealers. Yeah. And uh, this is say the third year, and it's a little slower, mm -hmm. right? You try to keep busy, but it's a little slower. Remember, it's cyclical. Well, the, the studio's only maybe 700 square feet. Uh -huh. It's not a huge warehouse right. with lots of employees. Yeah. I have no employees. A low overhead. Yes. I yeah. can't imagine paying somebody a $70,000 salary with health benefits. People do that? People do that. I've never had an assistant in my life. I have a, a friend, a 20-something writer who works four days a week for a guy her and a couple of other assistants in him. Yeah. And they take an hour for lunch every day. Oh my. Four days a week. She's probably 28, mm -hmm. 70 grand with health insurance. Not bad, huh? Not bad at all. I'm in the wrong business. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> well. Well, thanks for having me over. Yeah. Thanks for coming. It was great to talk to you. I hope it wasn't completely useless. No, totally useful. All right, <laughs> <laughs> thanks. Vision is recorded, edited by myself, Brian Alfred. You can find images I take from the studios at soundofvisionpodcast.com. You can also donate to the podcast, grab a Sound of Vision tote, and learn more about the show there. Uh, please leave a review on iTunes and rate the podcast. It helps a lot. You can find more about my work at paintchanger.com. I'll have work with Miles McHenry Gallery coming up at Expo Chicago, and I also teach at the Penn State University. Many thanks for listening to the podcast and for all of your support.